0: In the middle of World War II, when hundreds of thousands of American soldiers were in Europe fighting for freedom, Bing Crosby recorded a song that's become a standard Christmas song for us now. In 1943, when when he sang this for the first time, it was a new thought, and many of the the, um, recording uh, executives didn't particularly like this song. They didn't think that it would work at that time uh, in, in history because there were so many soldiers overseas. But since that time, this particular song has been recorded by as many as 150 different American artists, as diverse as Rascal Flats and Bob Dylan and the Beach Boys. He recorded these words, I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan for me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love lights gleam. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. For the first 30 years of my life, celebrating Christmas was connected to a home in Inglewood, Ohio, and being together with me and my family. Every year, my sisters and all of their family would come to my mom and dad's house to celebrate Christmas. My cousins and all of their families would come to my mom and dad's house for Christmas. My grandparents, while they were still alive, would come to mom and dad's. My wife and I, though we lived on the East Coast, would pack up our kids and travel to my mom and dad's for Christmas. We had traditions that we shared together, going caroling out in the neighborhood, coming back to the house and reading the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. On Christmas morning, we'd line up all of the children from youngest to oldest at the top of the steps, would come down the steps so that the youngest were able to see the presents in the tree first. The thing I remember the most about those years at my mom and dad's was that those Christmases were filled with love that came from our family being together. We were with the people that we love. I remember the first year that we didn't go to Ohio for Christmas. I remember it because that particular Christmas, the church where I served did a Christmas cantata called Home for Christmas. It was ironic to me that on the first year that we didn't go home for Christmas, we were singing about being home for Christmas. As I thought about it, the real irony is this. On that first Christmas, the one in Bethlehem, Jesus wasn't home for Christmas. Bethlehem wasn't the home of Mary and Joseph. It wasn't the home of their parents. Nazareth was. More to the point, planet Earth was not home for Jesus. In order for that first Christmas to take place, Jesus had to leave his home in heaven and come to earth to be with us. Matthew quotes Isaiah's prophecy from hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, where Isaiah said, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The extravagant love of Jesus for me is it's wrapped up in one truth. That God became one of us. He came to live among men, to experience the joys of life on earth, the 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 sorrows, the victories, the disappointments. He came to experience that with us. He's not a distant God, thousands of miles away, only in our dreams. He's here now with us tonight because of his love for us. This present contains a picture of our family. It's a wonderful gift. It's a a picture that was taken at my daughter's wedding this past spring. As a father... It represents for me this concept that we're talking about, that God would come to earth to be with us. Because at my daughter's wedding, all of our children and their spouses were together. Our grandchildren were there together. Collectively, the entire family was there. We were there together with each other. The wonder of Christmas, the extravagance of God's love for me is expressed in this. He came to be with us, one of us.
1: If, um, if you know me, you've probably figured out that I'm kind of a word guy. Uh, words have always been fascinating to me. Matter of fact, when I was in elementary school, we used to have to uh, uh, go to this thing called the dictionary. Did you ever have one of these? <laughs> And you'd have to write down the definition of words. Do, do you remember doing this? I don't know if that still happens in school or not with the, the internet and all that. But when I was a kid, it would take me forever to do my homework at elementary school because I'd get lost in the dictionary. I know that's super weird to say, but I would lo- I love just looking up words. I'd get lost. I'd go random words. Words are fascinating to me. and have always just meant something to me. Actions can be misinterpreted. A- and emotions, quite frankly, sometimes are hard to... To figure out or get right. But words have the ability to, to convey meaning that is precise and exact. I, I know it doesn't always work that way, but that's why we have words, and that's a powerful, powerful thing. So it's, it's interesting as we talk about uh, God's extravagant love for, for me, the, the thing that I think of is the fact that not, not only did Jesus come to be with us, but he came to give us his word. Literal words, like, like God in word form told me everything I need to know to figure out what it means to have this relationship with him. That's an amazing thing to me, that God gives me words. In, in John 1.1, 1, 1, the gospel writer starts with these words. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus came to, to be present with us, but he also came to give words. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul picks up this idea in Second Timothy 3. He says this, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you've become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, those are words, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, see God showed his extravagant love for me, not only in coming to earth, not only in redeeming me from sin and death, but in telling me exactly what I need to know in order to figure out how to live in this relationship with him. It's through God's literal words that I learn who I am, what my purpose is. Matter of fact, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, he says it like this. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, God had us in mind. He had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishment chalked up by all of our misdeeds. And not just barely free either abundantly free, God thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything will be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. Catch this part. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us had designs on us for the glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally. Your eyes focused and clear so you can see exactly what he is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. So in my uber cool gift bag here, This is what says God's extravagant love to me, that that he gave me words so I would know exactly what it looks like to live a relationship with him.
2: So for me, when I think of the word love, I think of action. Back when I was in junior high, I had a a Christian band that I absolutely loved, and they were called DC Talk. Some of you might have heard them before. They had a song called Love is a Verb, and so it's the idea that love is something that you, you do. It's an action step. And so I've been married for five years uh, to a great guy. His name's John. If you haven't met him, he's over here. You should say hi to him later. Uh, And John is more of a word guy, and he loves to tell me how much he loves me. John will say, I love you, at least probably 20 times a day. Just constantly, I love you, I love you. Hey, honey, I love you. And that's that's great. I'm glad that he can tell me he loves me. But what really means the most to me is what he does for me. So if I and gone for a while, leave the house, the house is a disaster, come home, and the dishes are completely done and put away. Like, oh my goodness, this guy actually loves me. <laughs> you know, like, that's amazing. Or if the laundry's done, I come home, and it's like, wow, thank you so much. Or if it's, we're laying in bed at midnight, and I turn to him and say, I need pickles and ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes and gets me the pickles and ice cream. It's just kind of the wow, this guy, he tells me he loves me, but he really means it because his actions show it for me. He has this servant attitude that he really, truly loves me. And so when I think about Christ and his love, that is kind of how I picture it, too. I think of, wow, Christ has done so much. He's done so much for me. And starting with, he came in a feeding trough. He came in, like, one of the lowliest places, and that's just amazing to me, The God of the universe would come in that kind of a way. And then we fast forward 30 years when Jesus begins his ministry and he starts to heal people. He's feeding people. He starts to hang out with 12 ordinary men, 12 guys that we probably wouldn't give a second look at. And he spends all his time with these guys. And in, in John chapter 13, John records an account that happened with Jesus and those 12 guys, his 12 disciples. And so in John 13:1, it says, it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, here's a phrase we want you to catch, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now this chapter goes on to tell us that Jesus then stood, grabbed a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and bent down with a basin of water and started washing the disciples' feet. Their nasty, disgusting, stinky feet. And he knelt down and started to wash them. That is amazing to me, that, that here is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he's kneeling down in a servant position, washing their feet. That shows the full extent of his love. And that, that act, it also is a, a foreshadowing of what was to come in just a matter of days, a foreshadowing of that humility that he was about to do as he gave up his life on the cross for us, that Jesus would come to earth just to give his life for me because he loves me so much. It's it's incredible. And Paul records a little bit of that, kind of describes a little bit of that action and that humility for us in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He says, Your attitude should be the same same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made into human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Rick, if you could hand me my present there. Bending over is a little difficult these days. <laughs> Thank you. Merry Christmas. Uh, so when I, when I think about love and Christ's extravagant love for me, I think of his his servant attitude and what he did for me. So I have my basin and my towel here. And so Christ, when he came, he went from... Just the healing people, that's amazing. Whoa. Hey, thank you. So that's incredible. And then to go from, from that to washing the disciples' feet to dying on the cross for our sins, that is absolutely incredible for me. That, that is extravagant love for me.
0: No matter how you're wired, I hope you have a sense tonight of the incredible sense of love that God has for you, his extravagant love for you, whether, whether that's the concept that, that he is with us, among us, that he came to be among us, whether it's that, that he expressed his love in words that, that we can grab onto that, that, that are so clear for us, whether it's love that's expressed in the model of Jesus' service for us, God loves you. That's the message of Christmas, His extravagant love for us. One of the things that I think kids in particular are most excited about at Christmas time is love expressed through presents, right? Through the gifts that are there. Um. Gifts. Uh, Gift giving, gift receiving is a, is an incredible part of Christmas. It brings joy. It brings fulfillment. It's the expression of love that we have one for another. Do you ever wonder why we give gifts at Christmas? There are really two reasons that come through. One is that in the story of Jesus' birth, we see this picture of the wise men coming from the east, thousands of miles away, and bringing to this to this baby, to this young child, gold, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh incredibly valuable gifts that God would use to help take care of their family probably for a number of years. That's one of the reasons why we give gifts. But probably more important than that is this concept that at Christmas time we understand that God is the author of every good and perfect gift, that God is the one who gave his son. John records it this way. He says, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, to die for us, to redeem us, to save us, to give us everlasting life. We have an opportunity tonight to live out that gift-giving in an incredible way, to to be extravagantly generous tonight, tonight and to change the lives of some people that we don't know in another part of the world. For the last month or so, we've been talking about the opportunity that we have to plant a church in Ecuador to be involved in going into a community where there is no church currently, there's no presence of Jesus. It's a dark place. It's a broken place. There are children there without any, um, without any opportunity to get medical care, without any opportunity uh, to to learn, to be educated. There are children that are that are really kind of raising themselves at a very young age without much clothing, without, uh, without shoes. They're in extreme poverty. And, and we're going to take an offering tonight to help plant a church in that place and to help provide for the needs of about 150 children for a couple of months in that community while, uh, while that church takes off and we have an opportunity then ultimately to be more involved longer term to help there. There are families in this community that are devastatingly poor. They live in shacks that are on stilts that cover the sea, shacks without any electricity, without any plumbing. It's a dark place, a dark place spiritually. This Christmas, we want to give the gift of Jesus to that community in Ecuador. We want to help plant a church there that can bring light into a dark place, hope to a place that's hopeless. The cost to buy the land to build the building and to help take care of those needs of the kids for a couple of months is $87,000. Maybe God will lay it on your heart to write a check for $87,000 tonight. That would be an incredible thing. $87,000 is a lot of money. It's an incredible amount of money for us. And yet I think when you think about the people who are here tonight who have been at the other service and this service, And you start to add up what we've spent for Christmas this year, we might have in our hands the ability to plant three or four or five churches and not just one. No matter what the size of your gift tonight, God can use those dollars to transform the lives of those children, to transform the lives of their family, to transform a community for eternity because God's love still has the ability to turn the world upside down. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to, to bless our gifts. Then the ushers are going to come down and they're going to pass baskets down each row. It's my prayer that you'll give generously, that you'll give sacrificially this Christmas and that those gifts will help change the lives of Ramon and Miguel, of Roberto and Maria, of Gabriella and Anna. Let's, let's pray just now. God, I thank you so much for this time of year, for the reminders that we have of your incredible, extravagant love for us. God, I'm so grateful that we live in a place that that has such affluence material blessings that we have the ability to give freely in so many directions. God, we have the ability to make a difference in another part of the world. Lord, I ask that you will take the gifts that are given tonight, that you'll bless them, that you'll multiply them, and that as a result of what we do this Christmas, Christmas 2015 here at North Point, that your light will come to a community that hasn't known you at all, that lives will change, that histories will change, that eternity will change because of the giving that we do just now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.